Okay, so it's 402. Um, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Tina Leona. I'm an associate professor in health and international development here at the department. Uh, well, not here, obviously, we're not in the office, in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. I'm one of the um, principal investigators of a project on redefining um, deprivation in a conflict area. And we're going to talk to you about the major key findings of this uh, project. The other uh, principal investigators were Dr. Guillaume Ahmede, who is one of the panel speakers here, and Professor Rita Jackaman, um, both from the University of Birzeit. The team is here um, listed, and you can find more information on the working paper, which has been published just a couple of days ago. And basically, this event is to launch the working paper, which summarizes the work that we've been doing in the last two years, the work that has been pub, um, funded by the Emirates Foundation through the Middle East um, Center. Um, it's, on, it's a major a collaboration between the LSE and uh, the University of Birzeit in La Malla in the Palestinian territory, uh, but also is a cross collaboration of, um, through the departments at the LSE, because the Department of International Development, the Department of Social Policy, and also um, Tracy Lean, who's now at the University of San Francisco, was previously um, through um, the Social Policy Department but also in collaboration with um, two key people at the university and the American University of Beirut, um, Halak Hattas and Zaina Jamaladin, who we want to thank uh, for their collaboration. So in terms of the way that this is going to work, we're going to speak for about 30 minutes, but this is going to be followed then by um, questions. Um, the uh, panel is going to speak in turns. Um, William Ahmude is going to start for the first few minutes. Then uh, Dr. Tresleen is going to speak for another 10 minutes. Suzanne Mitwale is going to speak for 10 minutes and then William is going to finish. Um, I would like to urge you to post your um, questions stating who you are, where you're from uh, in the Q&A um, section. And you can do this throughout the presentation. We're gonna read them at the end. This event is being recorded and also live streamed on Facebook. Is if you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag um, LSE Middle East, uh, please. And I would like to give you just a brief introduction of the um, speakers. We are is currently an assistant professor at the Institute of Community and Public Health at the University of Bizet. Um, a postdoctoral fellow and visiting researcher at the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the State University. She's interested in understanding how political and social transformation impact health, social, social well-being and population processes, particularly conflict area. Uh, previously, she got a PhD from um, Brown University. Trinity Kuhn-Lean, uh, previously at um, the Department of Social Policy in, uh, at the LSE, now is an assistant professor of health economics at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research examines health policy and health system resource allocation and their impact on public health and healthcare processes. She received her PhD on the University of, of California, Davis, and held the fellowship, as I said, here at the LSE. So then Mitwali is a researcher at the Institute of Community and Public Health in BZ, an assistant coordinator of the MSc in Public Health program, and her main research interest is in mental health. She has worked for many years on intervention research with a community-based rehabilitation organization. She's also been involved in several research projects um, at the Institute, and I've been lucky enough to uh, work with her, and we, we are now for the second um, project collaboration that we've had between this eight and the LSC. Um, the focus of this presentation will be on um, what we've done actually overall, it's a very, very small part of what we've done, but hopefully on top of the uh, working paper, we will be able to share with you um, the publications. So now I'm going to give the floor to Riyam to start the presentation. So Susan, if you can stop sharing so that, thank you.
thank you, Tiziana. And I'd like to just also thank all the different collaborators on this um, project. Um, so I'm just going to give a very, very brief uh, overview before we begin um, uh, discussing some of the main findings from the project. Um, and just to give you a sense of what our overall aims were for the study as a whole. So we were trying to understand, uh, to um, expand the definition of deprivation in order to include different forms of deprivation that are of relevance in the Palestinian context um, and to examine how these different indicators of deprivation are distributed across uh, space and social groups um, and then also how they affect um, health and mental health specifically and in addition, in addition to that we were also trying to understand how people themselves actually conceptualize um, understand and experience deprivation. And we'll clarify that in a bit. Uh, so our interest um, in deprivation as a concept, um, it comes from mainly through our work in health, generally where, um, where it's becoming increasingly important that deprivation and poverty more broadly can have far reaching effects on the, um, on li the lives, health and well-being of people. Um, and we're seeing an increased interest um, in poverty and deprivation, and it's it become more explicitly mentioned, not just by academics and researchers, but also um, policymakers, and it's part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and what and an important trend that we're also noticing in the literature is one that's actually pushing for more contextually relevant and multidimensional measures of deprivation and poverty. Um, so if we're thinking about um, deprivation, what it actually means, uh, and if we go back to one of the maybe more famous definitions that's put out, especially in the social science literature, uh, Townsend defined it in the, 19, in, in the 1980s as a state of observable and demonstrable disadvantage relative to the local community or the wider society or nation to which an individual family or group belongs. And so here we see, so there is supposed to be a, um, some kind of disadvantage and it is, you know, in essence, it is a relative concept and it's relative um, to different groups depending on uh, how we're actually examining uh, deprivation. And what we also notice is that it can actually occur at different levels, so including the individual family or group. But what we do notice in the literature, um, most, um, operationalizations or uses of deprivation have actually focused more on the material aspects. Um, although, like I mentioned, there is increasingly a push towards more multidimensional um, measures that try to take into account other forms of deprivation. Um, and this is sort of where our own study is situated or it's is, um, trying to build upon. Um, and a lot of these approaches, especially those focusing on the more multidimensional aspects, um, they build on uh, what's known as the capabilities approach, um, especially um, as discussed by San and Nussbaum. Um, and, and so here we see different conceptualizations of deprivation that focus on um, a deprivation of capacities or capabilities um, that affect different aspects of people's lives. Uh, what we do see here is there's still this, um, the relative component or the relative dimension of deprivation is still, uh, is still common, um, but there's increasing recognition that there are multiple forms that deprivation can actually take and it can have far reaching um, impacts. And there can also be a relationship or like interaction between the different forms of deprivations that ultimately affect people's lives and their health and well-being as well. Um, so so uh, with that in mind, um, we sought to understand how um, deprivation can be understood and its impacts in the Palestinian context. So and I think here it's important to know that um, if we're thinking more broadly about conflict settings or war-affected um, contexts, um, 
And typically, you know, in, especially in the in the literature on health, there was sort of this emphasis on more direct exposures to war and conflict and how those can impact health. But increasingly, there is um, there is a growing body of literature that actually looks at how different aspects of conflict and health and of conflict and war can actually impact other dimensions of life. So it can have an effect on the economic um, structures or infrastructures. It can have effects on um, the social fabric, social cohesion, um, so different dimensions that in turn then affects people's lives. So conflict itself can actually exacerbate conditions of daily life and then can do this um, through both direct and indirect mechanisms. And why is this important for understanding the Palestinian context? It's important because um, uh, uh, we're talking about a context of ongoing occupation of over 50 years and ongoing settler colonialism for over 70 years. Uh, and if we look at the map on the right, so what, and I should mention specifically, we're focusing in this project on the occupied Palestinian territory, which includes the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and so, and so the West Bank and Gaza were, um, uh, were severed sort of from Mandate Palestine after the 1948 war. Uh, the West Bank was uh, uh, governed or controlled by Jordan and uh, the Gaza Strip was controlled by Egypt until the 1967 war where they were then um, occupied by Israel. And at that point also uh, Jerusalem was illegally annexed um, uh, and, but it's still uh, under international law, it's still supposed to be part of the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, and within this context of ongoing occupation and expanding settler colonialism, especially with expansion of settlements um, and the fragmentation of land, um, and also the complications that arise from the different political um, agreements, including the Oslo Accords that have also created different um, different administrative regimes within the West Bank and Gaza, and especially within the West Bank that's been divided into areas B, A, B, and C, and then J1 and H1, um, J1 and J2, H1 and H2. So we have multiple divisions um, that uh, curtail any sort of um, Palestinian sovereignty or real um, authority within these areas that are supposed to be um, that are supposed to eventually become part of a, an independent Palestinian state. And so throughout that time, there has been this ongoing exposure um, to conflict, but it is a protracted conflict. So it's not, so while there is violence and there are moments where there is, um, there, there is a peak in, um, in violence, a lot of the stuff that people actually have to go through happens on a more day-to-day -day level, and it might not be sort of the kinds of violence that we imagine um, in conflict and war settings. And so, and this is very much in line with sort of the conflict, uh, the violence of every of everyday life, rather than um, you know like the bombings and and um, and killings, which do happen, but not necessarily uh, consistently on a large scale. And at the same time, there have been important changes um, and and also increasingly um, research and, and practice on the ground have actually been showing that there are growing inequalities um, within um, Palestinian areas and of course like between Palestinian and Israeli areas. And what we're also finding is that there are um, multiple vulnerabilities that exist, especially in more marginalized areas like Area C uh, and the Jordan Valley, which uh, Tracy will also talk about a little bit about later. So this is really our motivation to, uh, to think about deprivation within a context like this and within a context, especially of protracted um, conflict. Uh, and to try to better understand how these different, uh, uh, how, um, deprivation itself is manifested um, and how it can also be experienced um, by different groups of people, but also how it's actually experienced um, differently across space um, and time. Thanks, Riam. I need, I need to actually mm -hmm. ask you to conclude very quickly. Tomorrow. Yeah, so this is the last uh, slide and I um, and uh, so this is just so we tried to operationalize uh, deprivation within the Palestinian context from 
um, data that was actually available that uh, Tracy and Suzanne will present uh, analyses from. And so we thought, uh, so um, based on our review and based on, um, and also in line with some of the qualitative work that we've been doing, we identified four key areas of deprivation, political deprivation, material, uh, food deprivation, and um, general subjective deprivation. Um, and we measured each of these through um, uh, through the available data that we had. So political deprivation, for example, includes human insecurity, which is maybe like more prolonged, but also more acute political shocks, and then um, some key geographic um, indicators. Uh, and then when, uh, and then one more example. So the subjective deprivation also has a lot to do with whether people actually feel deprived, and then. Um, um, and we try to look at differences uh, across space. So I'm going to stop here for now and hand it over to Tracy. Thank you so much, William. Let me screen share. Um, okay. Um, Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here with us today. I will be discussing um, specifically food insecurity within the context of deprivation uh, within the context of deprivation in our larger study. Um, food insecurity is a multi-dimensional process and um, that it involves distinct faces along a food insecurity continuum, starting with food security at one end and ending with severe food insecurity or hunger on the other end. Uh, food insecurity impact, uh, conflict impacts food insecurity by increasing food expenditure and decreasing diversification of household diet and um, evidence are um, well-founded in the literature showing that this is the case. For our study, what we are interested in is understanding um, what is the relationship between political economics and cultural stressors and food deprivation in the context of a protracted conflict. And in this case, we're interested in um, food deprivation in terms of food diversity and food insecurity experience. Um, in the case of um, the Occupy Palestinian territory, uh, we were interested in how living conditions um, impact food insecurity across um, the, the territory. And so we looked at both um, food insecurity and the varying living condition in the West Bank, as well as food insecurity and the different living condition in the Gaza Strip. In the West Bank, um, allow me to quickly illustrate um, the the condition there is that in the darker brown you can see area C, and in the lighter brown you can see area um, A and B. And for Palestinians to go from one area to the other, they generally have to go through checkpoints, blocks, which um, one of them is illustrated here in the middle picture. And um, going through these um, checkpoints and um, roadblocks require time and effort, and um, sometimes these um, checkpoints cut through agricultural lands, which then impact um, farmers' livelihood. In the Gaza Strip, um, what we can see is the um, there are buffer zones around the um, the area. Here you can see the lighter purple is the 500 meter buffer zone and the darker purple is the no-go zone as well as the 150 meter buffer zone. And living um, in close proximity to these buffer zones can impact um, individuals' food insecurity experience and their ability to get a diverse range of food. Um, given our understanding and evidence on um, the living condition of individuals living in these areas, we formulated um, a set of hypotheses. For the West Bank, we um, hypothesized that exposure to Israeli actions through living in Area C directly increases um, the stressors, um, which include political um, stressors, economic stressors, as well as agricultural stressors. Um, and these stressors induced by living in Area C can decrease dietary consumption and food diversity. Um, stressors induced by living in Area C can also increase food insecurity directly, um, I'm sorry, um, indirectly. 
In the Gaza Strip, living in close proximity to a buffer zone um, can directly increase stressors, and living in close proximity to a buffer zone can decrease dietary um, consumption. Um, it can also um, directly increase food deprivation or food insecurity. Um, in order to evaluate our hypothesis, we adopt a structural equations modeling methodology. Um, it's a well-founded methodology where you, um, it was well-suited for a well-founded theoretical basis for relationships, which we have um, with a priori hypotheses. Um, technically, under this methodology, causality cannot be inferred um, and and in our focus, in our study, our focus is to understand the association between these variables and um, leaving the evaluation for um, causality in a later study. We used the data set um, from the 2014 socioeconomic and food security surveys. Um, the data set includes 4,215 households in the uh, in the West Bank and 2,916 households in the Gaza Strip. Um, for food insecurity, we looked at two measures. The first is food, inse food insecurity experience scale um, from the FAO, and we also look at food consumption score, which measures food diversity. Um, this slide illustrates the relationships um, we tested in our study. Um, looking at whether individuals are living in Area C or not, or in close proximity to the buffer zone or not, and if um, um, their living condition directly influences um, food diversity and food insecurity, or um, indirectly influence food insecurity through impacting political, economic, and agricultural stressors, which then impact food diversity and food insecurity. Um, and what we find here um, is illustrated in this slide. In this slide, um, the black arrows indicate statistical signif uh, statistically significant hypothesized relationship for both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, the green arrow indicates um, statistical statistically significant hypothesized relationships for, the, uh, for just the West Bank, and the red one um, is just for the Gaza Strip. And um, what we can see here is that um, for, um, for the Gaza Strip, um, there is a direct relationship between living in close proximity to a buffer zone to food diversity. It decreases food diversity while increases food insecurity experience. Um, in the West Bank, um, living in close, uh, living in area C impacts agricultural stressor. It increases agricultural stressors, which then decreases food diversity and increases food insecurity. Um, for both um, those living in Area C and those living in proximity to buffer zones, political stressors um, impact economic stressors and agricultural stressors um, by increasing them and um, agricultural stressors and is then um, associated with economic stressors. Economic stressors um, is then associated with uh, decreased food diversity and increased food um, insecurity. And obviously in these models, we control for education, wealth, aid, um, the area they live in and um, whether the head of household is female or male. Um, to summarize, um, our results find that living within Area C or in close proximity to a buffer zone is associated with agricultural stressors, which then in turn increase economic stressors and food insecurity. And living in close proximity to a buffer zone reduces food diversity, increases food insecurity experienced directly, and also increases political stressors, which then increases food insecurity and increase economic stressors. Um, obviously, with this data set, um, it's a cross-sectional data set, and it comes with a limitation of um, just having a snapshot of one time frame. And um, the questions in the survey only ask for stressors within a six month period and does not encompass all relevant stressors that may happen to individuals living in the territory. 
Um, and as I mentioned, there's also the issue of causality. We um, establish the association between these variables, but um, leaving um, causality and the relationship for future studies. Um, but what we can say is um, we find that occupation is associated with um, chronic conflict-induced food insecurity. And this relationship is rather complex and intertwines with societal characteristics. Living in more politically targeted areas um, leads to higher level of food insecurity, and it's likely that poor people are more susceptible to the stressors and have experienced reduced food consumption and higher food insecurity. And this suggests that social qualities can further exacerbate political vulnerability for people living in a territory. Thank you um, so much uh, for being here. And let me stop screen share and um, pass the back to Suzanne. Yeah, Daisy, for the perfect timing. Um, a reminder that you can post your questions on the Q&A. So ask away. Thanks, Susan. Okay, thank you. So I will not uh, talk much about the background because my colleagues already covered the background. I'll talk about the uh, uh, quantitative part of the study. It's uh, about the psychosocial impact of multiple deprivations uh, on mental health. So in the literature, it is, uh, it's well known that deprivation uh, negatively impacts health, uh, health status and health outcomes. And uh, in specific, some studies uh, have shown that deprivation lead to worse mental health and uh, increased probability of mental disorder. Uh, also, given our uh, context where conflict is high, uh, deprivation and its multiple dimensions can be also can be worsened in conflict setting and, and can interact with other daily life stresses. And this is in a way produce a negative mental health and poor mental health. So um, the objectives for our um, for this part of the study, uh, we am as uh, my colleague we am mentioned before, we am to present our uh, operationalization of deprivation. Um, which con uh, in a way which uh, we conceptual conceptualize deprivation in wider, uh, more widely, and also we uh, include uh, different dimensions of deprivation. Also, we want to analyze how these different forms of deprivation impact mental health and the uh, impact mental health of Palestinians, uh, taking into consideration the community effects in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, our methodology, we use the same data that uh, my colleague Tracy used, the, the socioeconomic conditions for Palestinians, 2014. Uh, for our, we use the uh, model, it's the two-level mixed random intercept model. Uh, for, uh, for accounting for neighborhood, we, uh, we, use, we use locality as a proxy for neighborhood, uh, because this is what was available in the data. Uh, for outcome measure that we have, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's uh, poor mental health. Uh, we, we use the general health questionnaire, uh, to, uh, the short form of the uh, general health questionnaire, GHQ12, uh, as, a, as our outcome. And we, as we are interested to understand how uh, different kinds of uh, different dimensions of deprivation affect mental health, we were uh, our independent variables, main independent variables were deprivation measures, the, firstly, the subjective deprivation, and also uh, we have the material deprivation, food deprivation, and political deprivation. Uh, the, we were constrained by the data that we have, so the deprivation forms that we were able to identify or to include in the model were these uh, that I have already mentioned. And for the control variables, uh, we, of course, age and sex, uh, education, household employment, and Health stresses. Okay. Uh, now I'll uh, I'll give uh, um, um, about our results. I'll give brief briefly. I will talk briefly about our results. As I said, the, our men, our outcome is the poor mental health (GHQ12) score, and the uh, different forms of deprivation that we looked at. Uh, were subjective deprivation, economic, political, food deprivation. Uh, for subjective deprivation, it was the 
is the, was the most important predictor of poor mental health. Um, it was the question about to what extent do you feel deprived? So it, is, it was the, um, the most important predictor of the poor mental health. And uh, importance uh, after, after uh, subjective deprivation comes uh, economic conditions or, or material deprivation. So, uh, and we have for material deprivation, we have two kinds. We have subjective measures and we have objective measures. Uh, for subjective, uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe it's worth to mention that those who, who mentioned that they are very deprived and they are even they or little or moderately deprived, they, they have, of course, higher uh, score of poor uh, of GHQ 12 compared to those who reported that they, do, that they are not deprived. Uh, for material conditions, so we have as uh, we have subjective wealth. So for those who uh, report if perceive themselves as very poor or poor, their uh, score were higher than those uh, who, um, who, 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 who perceive themselves as middle class. Uh, and also for those who perceived as, as expected, for those who perceived them as rich, the score were, of course, less. Uh, for the uh, objectives measure of our uh, material deprivation, it was the, uh, the quartiles. We, we divide according to the amenities at, the, at home. So we divided them to uh, the quartiles, the poorest quartiles, third quartile and second. And for those, uh, the, uh, the score were higher compared to the, uh, to, the, um, uh, uh, to the first quartile. And uh, of course, we have the economic st stressors that it's the acute stresses that people, um, um, as the people uh, were, were, were exposed to in the, in the last six months, as my colleague Tracy mentioned. So also for the economic stressors, it was, the score was higher for those who have economic stressors. Um, then come next, come political deprivation. For political deprivation, we have both human insecurity and political shocks uh, for, the, uh, for this dimension. Uh, for political shocks also, for those who uh, mentioned that, or the, the, according to the score, they have, for those who have political sh shocks, they have poor mental health, higher score of poor mental health. And for those, for human security, it is validated uh, uh, scale that we developed uh, and uh, we validated over many years. It's uh, for human security, uh, for those who, for those who, 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 who was, the, their score was higher, the poor mental health score was also higher. Uh, so the association is, uh, association is positively related to poor mental health. Uh, for food deprivation, uh, we, we included food insecurity and food consumption, uh, the, the measures that uh, Tracy mentioned and referred to. So for food insecurity, for those who were insecure, uh, the score were higher for them. Uh, the score was higher for them. Uh, and for food consumption, it is the other way around. For, for those who uh, have more food consumption, uh, their um, uh, score where uh, their score was less. Uh, this is for food deprivation. And for the social demographic characteristics, older people uh, reported uh, uh, the score for older people was more. And for those who below secondary education as expected, and females, uh, uh, the score for females also was higher. And for for those who have one uh, one person employed or more, the score was uh, was uh, was was less than those who, who do not have uh, somebody in the family uh, work. And also for the external stresses, we have only one question about health stresses. If the person has any uh, health problem that limits uh, limits his function or her function, so for health stresses, the more if the person has health stressor, then the score uh, the, the score is higher. Uh, yeah, two minutes. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. So uh, we can conclude from the what we have already <laughs> mentioned that mental health is associated with 
uh, various forms of deprivation and stresses. Uh, and this, uh, uh, and because we uh, we uh, we accounted for the neighborhood effect, it shows that it's uh, continues to be significant, indicating that there is uh, uh, variations between West Bank and the uh, Gaza Strip. Because we do we did separate analysis for for West Bank and Gaza Strip, and we we did uh, and I presented the combined one. But there are differences within West Bank. Uh, also, the predictors uh, that we used were uh, subjective and objective measures. Um, and and what our findings uh, also show that the subjective uh, measures are highly important as the objective ones. Uh, and deprivation, as we uh, as we have seen, that it is not perfectly correlated with material conditions. Which, uh, which confirms what we, uh, uh, what we are trying to, to present that deprivation goes beyond the material uh, measures only. And also people who were de deprived who are in our study were deprived in, in one dimension, were more likely to be deprived in other dimensions as well. And this is, um, if um, uh, um, this, uh, this is because there may be inequalities that, that exist. Uh, I, I, I will not mention the limitation because it's similar to, to what my uh, Trace, what my, my colleague Tracy mentioned. It is cross-sectional study, and uh, we know we can't draw any causality. And for the data, we for the data, but the thing for us is that uh, some aspects of social deprivation were not included in the data, and also wider health uh, measures were not there. So um, we were concerned by the data that we have at hand. Thank you. Sorry. Thanks, Susan. And now the cherry on the cake, the qualitative part. Um, I'll go back to uh, Wiam. We're running a bit over the times that we we said, but there's too much to say. Like Prince used to say, too too many findings, too little time. Thank you, Wiam. I'm trying to pull it up. It was sharing the wrong screen. Um, all right, so if we go back here, so just very briefly, um, and again, this is just a glimpse of what's actually in um, of the work that we're doing. Uh, so for the qualitative study, we did 53 in-depth uh, semi-structured interviews, and, um, and I should mention there was also one uh, focus group discussion, um, and we tried to diversify uh, the sample. So, our, I mean, most of the people that, most of the participants were women, um, so we had 35 women out of the 53 participants, um, and these are all residing in the West Bank because we were unable to actually get to, um, to Gaza. Um, aged between 19 and 83, and we tried to make sure that they came from different geographic areas. Uh, so there were 11 from Jerusalem, 7 from Ramallah, 10 from Nablus, 4 from Hebron, 3 from Kalkilio. Um, and these include both urban and rural settings. And we had five from camps in, um, in the north, center, and south. And we had 12 participants from the Jordan Valley. So I'm just going to briefly um, uh, just the main takeaways from the qualitative. So, and this is no surprise, and we've been showing this, I think, in the different parts of the study. Um, so in people's uh, understanding of deprivation, they emphasize that it actually extends beyond the material. Um, and so if we look at uh, two of these definitions here, so one, uh, one of our interlocutors said, perhaps deprivation is a lack or shortage of something available to all people, but unavailable to you due to certain circumstances. And another person said, it means emotional deprivation, political deprivation, deprivation in general. I did not think of something specific. Possibly material deprivation, being deprived from having children, general things, not something specific, something that everyone has and you want to obtain. Um, and then um, he goes on to say, a deprivation is paralysis, suppression. So there is this, again, this idea that it takes different forms and it's also relative to um, a certain standard, whether it's the people around you or some um, more abstract standard of what's the bare minimum in terms of, um, of what you need. And what we noticed from the study, like the main area that people really did emphasize was this whole idea of deprivation of rights and freedoms. And that took on, um, I mean, the main manifestation is this was with, with 
of this was in political form, but it also extended uh, to the social context. Um, so we can see, for example, as um, one person put it, deprivation as a person's loss of anything beautiful they wish for, like peace, like freedom, like living in happiness. That is deprivation. Deprivation is the loss of things that is the most telling phrase, or a lack of beautiful things, the things that we Palestinian people or humans in general want and need. Um, so there is this recognition that, um, again, it goes back to this whole idea of freedom, of being able to, you know, have... Um, a peaceful existence in, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, another person added the, the homeland, my country, being deprived of many rights because of occupation. What I mentioned are rights legislated internationally, even in supreme laws. So consequently, you expect that you should have these rights. And consequently, it applies that it is a loss because this is my right and it is not available or it was taken from me. So this is a loss. And here, I think what's important to emphasize, especially when we take into account the different um, definitions of deprivation, is that um, this person is not comparing to the people around them because, you know, there is sort of this more communal or collective experience of being deprived of rights due to occupation, but they're actually comparing it to this um, uh, this normative standard, like or, or international law in this case. Uh, so this also, and in the sense, they're also emphasizing how this is, you know, one of the main areas of uh, deprivation. Um, and like I said, the, this part, which is very much linked to the political, we found it was also linked to social aspects of deprivation. Uh, so for example, we had um, people who had um, uh, political prisoners in their families talk about being deprived from seeing their loved ones. And that was a really important form of uh, deprivation that they felt on an emotional or social level. And there were also restrictions on, um, on family reunification, depending on what kinds of IDs people had that also then deprived them of actually living um, uh, uh, peaceful lives or the ability to actually live with their loved ones. And what was um, notable um, through a lot of these was that different form, what we were finding was that different forms of political um, uh, deprivation were actually um, then gendered in a sense. So in places where there were greater exposures to let's say checkpoints or the, or the occupation had a more visible presence, um, women often talked about how that um, precarity or like that insecurity in the political context was actually used to limit their movement even further. So they were um, limited um, especially by their family members in order uh, like from uh, moving around more freely um, and mostly out of a concern for their own safety. So, it, you know, it's still, and it, so it manifested itself um, in a gendered uh, manner as well. And, uh, and for, uh, and for some people, these actually, the different forms of deprivation came together and, and in turn affected what they kind of talked about as this deprivation of opportunity or possibility. And, um, and one interlocutor in the Jordan Valley, uh, he talked about he talked about this also in developmental terms. So he said, what sustainable development do we have for future generations? There isn't any, I don't see it at least, not in the short term and not even in the medium term term. I do not see the possibility for development. There's supposed to be a different approach in thinking about these areas. And when you get to the issue of deprivation, you find that you are deprived from government plans for the implementation of projects uh, for this country. Everything is built on deprivation and precarity. And here, like they also, a lot of the people within the Jordan Valley, they talked about the, the different forms of deprivation that were specific um, to the Jordan Valley, Valley because of um, greater Israeli restrictions and most of these areas are classified as Area C. So they're largely under um, Israeli jurisdiction. And at the same time, they, they also felt like they weren't given as much attention by um, also the uh, Palestinian political leadership. And in turn, this affected, you know, there are, some, there are opportunities for development and opportunity in general. Um, and so this links with the next point, which is that deprivation itself was, was spatially linked. So what we found throughout um, the study was in the different areas of the West Bank, people actually, you know, there were common threads, but the details or the manifestations of deprivation varied quite a bit spatially. 
Um, and so this was also from the Jordan Valley. And one man said, look, of course there is deprivation. And when you say what phrases or terms describe this, there's no justice in the distribution of resources. And there are resources available to the government. You notice that these areas are marginalized. They are lost on the government's list of priorities. It doesn't have any plans based on a holistic framework that address the conditions in this area. If we ask about plans, we can see that all of the ministries have strategic plans. But once you ask about whether you can apply them in the Jordan Valley in light of the occupation's policies, of course not. No, because if there are really, if there really are strategic plans for the ministries and government that are conducive to implementation and adaptable to the Jordan Valley areas and Area C, then we would have seen the effects. So here again, they're also bringing in the specificity of the areas. And, and what we're also seeing is this interaction between um, the measures uh, taken up by the occupation and what people are also talking about is uh, the lack of um, investment or attention uh, to these areas, um, which might also be linked to um, some of the restrictions that actually happen on, um, uh, due to occupation. Um, and so just to kind of summarize, and again, this is a very, very um, brief uh, snippet from um, this part of the study. But what we noticed was people kept emphasizing the multidimensional um, nature of deprivation. And one of the strongest things that they kept, uh, or one of the strongest components, um, really had to do with the sense of rights, whether it was political or social rights. Um, and here, like I said before, the social was very much uh, gendered in terms of its manifestation. Um, and what we're also finding is that different forms of deprivation intersect with one another. Um, and this was also consistent, for example, in what Tracy presented, where we saw links between the political and the economic, um, and then how they affected uh, different dimensions of life. So this actually, you know, this calls us to think about more intersect um, intersectional approaches um, when uh, examining deprivation and measures that might be might better equip us to actually try to capture some of these um, some of these dimensions on a larger scale. Um, as I mentioned, the experience of deprivation itself is also quite gendered, especially in the social domains. Um, and this was something that we consistently heard about um, throughout the different areas from both women and men. Um, and what we're finding too is that inequality is also um, there is inequality in the spatial uh, uh, distribution of deprivation. So people talked about these pockets of vulnerability, whether it was the Jordan Valley or camps. And oftentimes um, what we see is that within these pockets, they actually face multiple forms of deprivation. So they are more likely to expose, uh, more likely to be exposed to um, acute or direct political violence. And at the same time, there are um, larger structural um, determinants that affect um, you know, the everyday aspects of daily life. Uh, so, and this is important to actually take into account because what we're finding is that the vulnerable um, tend to be vulnerable on multiple fronts. And just to summarize kind of the study as a whole um, in the best, <laughs> as much as I can here. Um, so the study shows that like politics and locality are important components um, uh, in terms of how they affect mental health and well-being, but also in terms of how they actually affect deprivation and its experience. Um, the political and so social dimensions of deprivation um, seem to be more pressing to people uh, in the qualitative, and they were, um, and the political was important also in the quantitative analysis, although we weren't really able to capture the social dimensions given the data that was available. Um, but all of the different parts of the study actually confirm that um, deprivation is multidimensional. It does include um, these various aspects and it, and it pushes us to think further about how we can um, operationalize these definitions or reconceptualize them, especially in contexts of uh, protracted um, uh, conflict. And ultimately um, uh, what we're seeing is that 
the you know just the presence of occupation and the uh, different experiences or um, manifestations of deprivation as a result do have an impact uh, do have an important effect on people's lives their livelihoods and their well-being um not only in the short term but also in the long term it's actually you know and this pushes us to think more about these structural determinants um that links with with broader broader issues of um social justice I'm going to stop here. Thank you, and and we'll talk more. I think in the Q and A. Thank you so much, Riam. Um, I was going to try and and take few points at the end, but you, you gave the gist of of the of the of the of the project, uh, and also um, you summarised what. Um, is really key for anyone really looking at uh, health and deprivation in a conflict setting that um, locality matters a lot, that we can't just give a brush stroke of, of, of what's going on. And you just need to travel around the Middle East, um, the Palestinian territory to, to just feel it um, on your skin and with, with your eyes. Um, it's a shame that we couldn't come and do the the um, dissemination over there is something that really pains us. Um, but also that every conflict is, is unique in its own perspective. You often hear that the Palestinian conflict is unique, but tell me any other conflict that is exactly the same as any other. Um, the sufferance and the deprivation, and that's why we need something more in-depth, but at the same time generalizable. And I think that um, this project in itself has achieved that. And there is so much more of the qualitative data um, that can be extracted. And I think that's probably one of, and I say that being quantitative as probably the most interesting part of the project. So I really look forward to the, um, to the results coming out in papers, but apologies, we've taken too much. We've got um, three questions here. Please do keep on, on posting. I think I'm gonna, fire them at the three of you um, directly. So Dr. Ramsey says, how can we persuade the Israel government to let the food aid get to Gaza and other parts of Palestine? Um, then Nihal, MSC candidate in conflict studies, to what extent is food insecurity um, used as a management negotiation or escalation tool in the context of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? And lastly, Zoya, um, amazing presentation, MSC Human Rights and Politics candidates would like to ask if how the respondents to the survey mentioned ongoing attempts to overcoming immediate and long-term deprivation brought by the occupation. Um, so I don't know whether, Tracy, you want to start with this? Sorry, I'm on mute. Uh, I, <laughs> um, so I think um, I can answer um, Nihal's question to a certain extent, and um, I think Wiam would have, uh, um, you know, um, something to add to that. But you know, in the conflict literature, we know that um, food deprivation. Um, and you know, blocking routes to the market or making it difficult for individuals to go to the market has been used as a, a tool um, in in conflict escalation. There's conflicts in in Africa as well, um, and in in the. Um, uh, Israeli-Palestinian context, um, what we can say here is, you know, the the roadblocks and the checkpoints that are set up are meant to make life more difficult um, for the individuals living in the, the territory. Um, and as to their intention, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I don't know what they say behind um, closed doors, but um, Wiam, do you have anything to add um, to that? I think one. I mean, uh, one thing I would add is um, so the f food insecurity bit um, can be quite complex. So um, in the Jordan Valley, like in especially Area C, that's where most of the agricultural land is. And so, and this, if you're thinking more in terms of sustainability and food sovereignty, these are really the areas um, 
that there should be more investment on to, uh, investment and to actually assure uh, greater food security, but there are also the areas that are most affected and there are restrictions on access to land and water, which then consequently would affect, you know, the food basket. And then one other thing is um, in Gaza, especially with the beginning of um, this last siege, it was, you know, there were documents that were revealed by the Israeli military um, where they were actually, they had these complex calculations in, in terms of calorie intake and how much they would actually allow into the Gaza Strip to, to keep people alive, but not necessarily thriving. So this is, again, this idea that plays on some of these issues. Yeah, and to add to that, there are stories of OCHA or UN agencies that had to weigh in whether to, to take off anything else in order to get food in. So even a survey questionnaire would have to be at the, at the detriment of something else. So yeah, because everything gets weighed. In. Susan, did you want to add something else on? Um, there is also the question, the last one from Zoya. Um, respondents in survey? Yeah, I think maybe the qualitative. Qualitative? Because oh, the qualitative. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, okay, so in that case, we are. Um... All right, I mean, Susan is also involved um, in the actual <laughs> data collection. But I mean, so this was, so I think there were um, different attempts that people used. So sometimes, and some of these um, you saw sort of more communally, especially if they knew kind of like who the vulnerable groups are within their own areas. Um, uh, and I think sometimes they, so there were some sort of local resources, sometimes they were able to sort of garner like other resources. Um, and then I think people also develop kind of, you know, at the family level ways of, you know, saving or uh, trying to make sure that they might have resources. Um, for different forms of deprivation. But, but if we're thinking more about like the mobility restrictions and things like that, what we were seeing was sometimes people would actually try to limit their movement so that they wouldn't actually have to go through the humiliation of going through checkpoints. And, and so, and, and, and that unfortunately then kind of makes their worlds a bit smaller in a sense. Um, and I think Suzanne, I'm sure you can add more here uh, given your own experience with different communities. Yeah, as you said, the, the collective way of uh, they have usually collective way of coping with uh, deprivation and with, with uh, violence. And sometimes it's of course uh, individual, but uh, most of the time it's uh, communal. So I don't have more to mention. But um, yeah, no, I don't think I have more to, to add. Thank you. Two quick last questions. One from Michael. Uh, Mason um, is the director of the Middle East um, Center. Uh, many thanks for the very interesting presentation. Are there any practical ways your fundings could alter how UN agencies apply ideas of human security in the um, Palestinian territory? And lastly, um, David Lewis, our own David, um, one of the um, co um, co-researchers on this uh, project. And um, what do you feel as was learned about how to do a mixed method study of this kind? Are there any shareable lessons, which is a very good point. So I'll leave it for any of you. Yeah, for mixed methods, I think it's uh, always good to have when, when it's possible to have mixed method because uh, uh, each method complements the other. Because the survey, um, especially, especially because the survey was not aimed to uh, to measure deprivation. There were questions about deprivation, they, but, but the main aim was not about deprivation. So qualitative adds to the uh, to the meaning of the deprivation for people, how they conceptualize it, how they see the different forms of uh, uh, of, of deprivation. So it, it adds a lot to the quantitative part. And I will leave the last question to Wiam. I mean, also in light of the dissemination event you did yesterday in Bizet. So Michael's question, um, you, you had UN agencies at the, at the dissemination event, didn't you? Yeah, we could. Um, so I think one of, so we're thinking in terms of practical ways, one of like the basic ways um, to think about this is, you know, even in thinking about like vulnerabilities or deprivation and a lot of these UN agencies also try to focus on more marginalized groups is really trying to push them to actually 
think about um, multiple forms of deprivations and how they can overlap. And I think one of the other main things coming out of this is thinking about how these things intersect with one another and then what actually causes them or what leads to them. And this is this then also puts the onus on these different UN agencies and some do a better job than others, but not just in terms of um, reporting, but also trying to play a more active role in advocacy and really pushing um, for a more holistic uh, change. Do you see, just lastly, do you see any hope in terms of um, activities resuming now that there has been a regime change over the pond? I mean, is that something that you're seeing discussed? I mean, because AMRA got a serious cut in funds and um, I'm just wondering whether there is any any kind of spring shooting coming up and there is some... Um. Yeah, I think now there is an expectation that there will be more funding. So the funding cuts did um, like affect their ability to provide more humanitarian assistance. Um, and I th and, and honor was usually facing a consistent shortfall. So it was especially bad during the Trump era. Um, so I think that should improve, but I think it's also important to note that what these findings and also other insights from different studies show is that like the emphasis can't just be on humanitarian aid because it's, you know, it's very much just kind of appeasing the situation, but it's not actually treating the root causes of people's deprivation. And I think this is what um, the findings really are emphasizing. Yeah. Um, any, any last thoughts from the speakers before we conclude? Thank you so much. Um, I feel very privileged to have worked with you on this project and all the rest of the group, which is much bigger than this. I want to thank um, Rawan, um, Ernestina, um, David, and Rita, who's a major force um, for good um, in, in Ramallah. And um, I wish we could be there now to share some bread and nice aubergines with you, um, the most amazing food ever. Um, I would like to invite, uh, thank you very much to the um, attendees and also to invite you on the 10th of um, May on a joint Global Health Initiative and Middle East um, Center um, public lecture, LSE public lecture on the geopolitics of the Middle East. Um, I've put the link in the chat and Riam will be one of the speakers. So you're going to get um, some more. Um, and please do check the pages of the Middle East. They're very active on their blog events and working papers. It's, it's a great active center within the LSC. And um, I hope to see you soon. Bye.